Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of the Whanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. Hello, beautiful Jen. Hi, lovely. How are you? Good. You look like you've had a wonderful day. You look like you've been out walking in the world. Been for a run, so I've got that red face run glow. <laughs> you just look beautiful to me. I'm envious. It's the first day that it's cool and cloudy, and of course I have no one to look after my children. Uh, well, hopefully the cool change sticks around for you. Yeah, fingers crossed I can go for a run sometime this week. It's supposed to rain till Wednesday, so I'm like, that's like three days. I could probably get two whole runs in. Did you at least have cake today? Because you made that a beautiful birthday cake. I did, and it was really yummy. Excellent. And it's such a pretty cake. I love cakes that are pretty. It was beautiful. You are a cake expert. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, what sparked joy for you this week? Um, for me, a big joyful moment was on Wednesday, I texted my friend Meredith because I was having a really bad day and instead mm. of spiraling into bad mental health, I just asked if I could come hang out with her and she said sure. So we took her dog Meg for a walk on the beach and it was mm. just like exactly what I needed. The sunset walk, playing with Meg, we saw loads of other dogs, you know, and Meg was like making friends, which was adorable. And then we so had good. ice cream until it was dark and I dropped Meredith home and I came home and I felt like a whole new person so you know it's good to recognize when you need these things and ask for help and then you don't have to spiral if you catch yourself early enough yeah absolutely I love that for you and I love that you got to have dog time dog time is the best really and she's just the sweetest most perfect little dog she's adorable so I think I might follow that dog on Instagram I'm pretty sure I do and she's She's so cute cute. I'll post a photo of her in the, the show notes she's so cute what sparked joy for you this week um I had a really good moment this week in my chaplaincy class Um, So I'm doing the Not Sorry Productions chaplaincy class and um, someone just gave me a really beautiful compliment. They said, I love the way you talk about your kids and parenting. And whenever you talk about your kids, I just want to breathe it in. And I was like, "Ah." so that I started crying and telling them about like how much I love my kids and how they were the making of me and blah, blah, blah. But it was just, it was such a beautiful compliment. And I felt like there was a little moment of connection and I was like, this was really nice to hear and I'm trying to do that for my kids and it's been a hard week for everybody. So, oh, that's lovely. And of course, this chapter, this section was amazing. Oh, lots of joy there. I'm so happy we finally get to talk about it. Um, yes. So yeah, this this week we're reading chapters 28 through 35 through the theme of control. Uh, do you have a story about control for us? I do. And it's actually like it happened this week too. So it's super current. Not that it will be current when this actually is published, but <laughs> it's current for right now, man. Great. Okay. So the other night the power went out in our suburb. It happened just at bedtime and we like settled in. We were watching a movie and then the whole house went dark. And it's always a little bit scary when this happens but we like to think Mm. we're prepared we've got lots of flashlights we have led candles which are adorable and we have tons of camping lanterns like solar powered and battery powered so we would be okay for light my daughter even though she was disappointed about the movie she went off to bed to read with a flashlight and my son stayed in the big bedroom with me so i could sit with him while he went to sleep now he didn't seem upset at all like it was really exciting for him we got to go and find all the night lights and he wanted to go and get his two little Mario lights and turn them on and then he wanted to arrange them on the desk and then he kept getting up and, and moving them around so that they were in a different order and then he would get up again and move them around and, and I kept saying, come back to bed, come back to bed. And after about 20 minutes of this, I was like, okay, no more silliness. 
come back to bed and he started crying. He said, I wasn't being silly. I was helping. Aww. And I'd really hurt his feelings. I had meant to, but I did. And, you know, I did apologize. We had a big cuddle and I managed to get him to sleep. But I thought about it for a long time afterward. I'd missed this really important cue that my son, like me, is action man. He wants to be in control of things so he doesn't get sucked into the anxiety of the moment. He wants to be an active part of the fix so he can reassure himself that the solution is like happening. It's coming. That's what's going mm. on. Like me, he needs to be doing something so he doesn't feel like he's lost control of everything. Now this leads to the second part of my story. I recently signed up for a chaplaincy class and when I thought about why I was taking the class, it came back to something I first heard from John Green. And he picked this phrase up during his stint as a chaplain in a children's hospital. It's an inversion of something we've heard a lot. It goes like this. Don't just do something. Stand there. I really need to learn this. Like, this is the thing I want to learn. This is this year for me. I want to learn how to do this. Because anxiety is a liar. And it's told me over and over again that if I'm not a problem solver, a thinker, a helper, that no one will love me or want me around. Problem solving became a shorthand for contributing. Controlling my environment helps me feel like I'm not a tiny moat in the infinite cosmos when mm -hmm. I am, in fact, a tiny moat in the infinite cosmos. So as I remember for next time that my son, Action Man, has the same impulse as I do to create community by solving problems, to reclaim calm through control his environment, I will be kinder to myself and to him. It's okay to be silly. The lights will come back on. For now, I will sit with him in the dark. Don't just do something. Stand there. Yeah, that's really hard. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah. I think that this is what I'm going to focus on this year, though. Like, I'm bad at... And you've been so good. Like, if you're telling me something and I'm like, have you tried this? Have you tried this? You will just say to me, no, I just want to complain. I don't actually want to solve yeah. <laughs> it. I love that you're so direct with me because often the groove that I'm in is to solve it. So I love that you're able to just tell me. And thank you for being so gracious no. with me solving your problems. And you're like, I'm just complaining. I know that you are doing it to help as well. So I sometimes I just want to stop you before you put too much effort into it. I'm like, don't <laughs> expend any energy on this because I'm not going to be taking up any of your suggestions. <laughs> but I love that you do it. Like, I love that you care. But yeah, I'm very much the same. Like, I, I definitely it's something that I worked on a lot in therapy was the idea that you have to keep doing in order to have value to people and it's like yeah. no people value regardless of what you are doing for them those two things do not correlate yeah I find that I would never ask somebody to be around me just because of their utility I, in fact I always feel like I'm taking advantage of my friends because they're so wonderful and I'm just like this needy horrible being but I wonder no. if everyone feels like that you know what I mean yeah and that's what you have to keep reminding yourself. Like that's the, whenever I fall into like a negative self-talk pattern or kind of something a little bit destructive is like, would I expect this of a friend? Would I say this mm. to a friend, right? Like I would never do that. So why am I doing it to myself? It's probably one yeah. of the most useful tools we have, which is very narcissistic, but it works. Yeah, look, I mean, there was a point where when my husband would say self-deprecating things and I would say, hey, don't talk about my friend like that. Mm. And he does the same for me. And it's just nice to be like, wait a second. We're talking about ourselves, but that's also like, yeah, that is my best friend and my friend's friend. <laughs> like you can kind of yeah. take yourself out of it. It's a continual learning process for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah, of course. Shall I do some chapter summaries? Oh, yes, please. This is your time to shine. <laughs> I'm so excited because Baz is back. Baz Yay. is back, baby. And he is starving because mm -hmm. he was kidnapped by numpties. Mm -hmm. But luckily his punk auntie Fiona was there to rescue him. Simon is of course weirdly relieved to see him but he can't admit it so he just gets mad instead. And Baz, now that he's back, can tell us what we're all dying to know. How he feels about his chosen one roommate. And he's got it bad. And we really sympathise. And this is everything <laughs> I love in life. 
And we finally get to see his point of view and we get to see the point of view of the old families and what the mage is doing. And you start to see that like, hey, maybe everything is not quite as cool and easy as, you know, Penny and Simon would have us believe. Like Agatha's sort of given us that alternate point of view. But Baz is in it, right? Mm. And like Fiona is in it. And like, sure, she is probably a bit paranoid, but she's not wrong that she thinks the mage is up to something. (laughs) She's not wrong, but also she's very wrong in that she didn't pay the ransom. Just pay the ransom. Yeah, I agree. The ransom thing. I thought that was very much an expectations thing like you know we're expected to behave in a certain way and therefore we have to uphold the family honor so i cannot do this thing also there's the whole thing they have about you know when baz is telling the story about philippa's voice and fiona's like she's not one of ours is she it's really really grim like it's grim what this war has sort of done what this vengeance has sort of done how it he dehumanizes people right but also i wonder if that's part of the divide between like the old families and everyone else right Mm. one of ours i didn't think that as a who's on our side in the war i thought that as is she one of like a a pitch or a grim or is she up there is she a well-beloved you know what i mean yeah it's like when she talks about how she dates normals but she wouldn't marry one because she's not a race trader it's really grim (laughs) grim language like it's gross fiona is a bit complicated and gross yeah she's not great I'm just thinking she's like real 90s feminism vibes you know what I mean yeah yeah it's a very white feminist (laughs) even though it's not you know she's not necessarily white but that's just the vibe she's got a lot of privilege and she's not examining her privilege but yet she acts like she's subverting it yeah and she cosplays as a punk right like she cosplays like she hasn't got a chip on her shoulder and she's so rebellious and all those things but she's never really you know the kind of counterculture movement thing which doesn't come from a working class background doesn't come from any real moment Mm. it's just like I'm just gonna co-opt this movement for myself dressing up as but not actually being one I think there's something about her not having expectations because her sister was groomed to be Mm. the heir to the pitch line right so she's always been able to kind of do what she wants to do yeah I very much saw that there was a Natasha Grimm pitch kind of like expectation factor right like this expectation of what Fiona can behave like and now the expectation that Natasha was going to be great so Fiona could do what she wants but now Natasha's not there so Fiona's kind of like trying to pick up the weight of that expectation but she doesn't know Mm. how and then there's also this expectation that flows onto Baz right like his expectation to work hard study hard do all these things that his mother would have expected of him yeah but he likes them so he uses it as an excuse to control Mm. his environment I thought that was Mm. a really interesting thing like he gets out of a coffin where he's been trapped for six weeks and it's like take me to school that is messed up can i just say like there's the numpty's expectation about how to look after a vampire right and i don't know Mm. if that was them like acting on their own or whether they were given instruction that this is what they were supposed to do but either way it is completely messed up that baz was kept in a coffin for six weeks it's and just like we never really deal with that he never really deals with that no i was thinking about that too like where is his year in therapy Honestly, just the fact that he was like locked in a box for six weeks. The fact that he is still so in control is incredible. Like Baz's control is exceptional, I think. Like he is in control of his emotions. He is in control of his vampirism. He is in control of the narrative. Like he, when he uses that open sesame to arrive because he's like, I was always going to do it this way, right? Like what was the line? Page 153. I I wanted it this way. I wanted to be the only person who got to break the news that I'm back. Yeah, he's pretending he's not hungry, even though he feels like he's always going to be hungry. Which he has in common with Simon. Yeah, I know. I saw that too. Oh, I have a whole new section called Compare the Pair, which is like all the wonderful parallels we have between them. Baz has had control even from a young age. Like that whole story about the crucible, right? Like Simon says, you know, he comes over looking so cool. Like he was coming my way because he wanted to and not because there was a mystical magnet in his gut. 
Mm, I love that. I actually love the way that Simon describes it too. Like I, I'll find it because I thought it was so beautiful. The magic doesn't stop until you and your new roommate shake hands. I held my hand out to Baz immediately, but he just stood there for as long as he could stand it. I don't know how he resisted the pull. It felt like my intestines were going to burst out and wrap around him. This mm. is a theme. Yeah. And like Baz's control drives Simon crazy because Simon doesn't have control. And I just think the control he exerted even to stay alive in that coffin, right? Like what he had to do in order to cope. Like he talks about how he let himself slip away just to stay sane. Like Baz, I know. Just, you break my heart. Poor little possum. I know. Give the boy a hug. Yeah, for real. And like, this is so terrible that he was kidnapped. Like it makes me angry at the person who orchestrated this all over again forever. Mm-hmm. Not only was he badly treated in the whole thing, but the reason was just to keep him from his mother, right? Which is such a violation as well because he hasn't seen his mum since he was like five years old and she was taken from him and this was a moment for them to reunite and it was stolen from him and it just that's a lot it's like not being allowed to go to a funeral or not being allowed to see someone one last time it kind of reminds me of all of the people dying over the last couple of years how everybody was facetiming their goodbyes from mm. hospitals because that people weren't allowed in because covid was so contagious and this was pre-vaccine but all of those stories broke my heart you couldn't even be with the people you wanted to be with in your last moments I mean, even that photo of the queen sitting on her own on, you know, her husband's funeral, like you couldn't hug anyone, which is why I'm infuriated at these people protesting in Wellington at the moment, because it's like, you know, they stand there saying that COVID is a conspiracy and that it's not real. How do you just live with yourself, quite frankly? It's just anyway. the privilege of being able to live your life without these consequences affecting you. I know the privilege of bleating on about living in a fascist state and not having any freedom when you're literally <laughs> camping on the ground in front of parliament. Like, let me tell you in a real fascist state that would not be happening no they'd be murdered they would have been scrubbed out of existence there's a really fascinating book that has come out recently i think I think it's called The Commissar Vanishes and it's about all of the photo editing that they did in like yeah. the Stalin era, I think. But like they're, they're like people scrubbed out of photographs and like the history was actually rewritten by the people in charge. Like that's actual fascism. Like that's a state yeah. that you can't, like you don't exist if you don't exist anymore. And I put it on my book reads list. I'll put it in the show notes. But it, I just thought like, wow, even back then when it was like literally a guy in a dark room photo editing like by hand, they were still managing mm. to do it just for propaganda. So... Oh, so grim. A lot of yikes there. Just get your vaccines, yeah. guys. It's not going to hurt you. Just wear a mask. It's a nice thing to do. Heaven's sakes. Yeah. Just be nice. We're not asking for a lot here. Like, honestly. No, it's a minor inconvenience. Yeah, so let's talk about Simon's complete lack of control of his magic and his emotions. Yes! You know, just the way that he pulls his hair all the time. Because he can't figure out to be how to express himself. You always see it doing, like, when he's trying to find words and he can't, he's always, like, raking his hand through his hair, making a mess of his curls. And, like, just this boy. This boy. I wonder if that's part of why he keeps it so short when he's not at Watford. Because he talks about how he shaves it off at the beginning of every summer. So he, he, he can't do that. He can't have something that's, like, pullable, touchable. He has to figure himself out another way or maybe he just completely withdraws I don't know yeah I'm not sure he talks about fighting a lot when he's not at Watford so he can't deal with his emotions at all like he's always running places when things get too much for him right like he says he runs out of the door after he wakes up the night that Natasha Grimpitch yeah. visited him because he just can't he can't Ghosts stand it can anymore have right? the room yeah and then Baz talks about how he can feel Simon staring at him because he's so worked up and his magic is leaking out all over the place and how when he goes off it just completely makes him mental. Yeah, he doesn't think anymore. It's just gone. But if he knows you're there, he'll protect you. Like it's instinctual. Yeah, I love that line on page 162. It's just like him really to use what little control he has to protect other people. He's a good soul. It's beautiful because like enough people know about it. 
about it. Even Baz knows about it. And he's always picking on Simon. Like, he is picking at him. Winding him up. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Stirring, as we say in my household. Mm. He's always stirring him. And he doesn't have a lot of patience for him because he's doing the same thing where he's keeping him at arm's length. So he doesn't have to actually, like, deal with him. There's a beautiful line where, on page 161, where Baz is talking about Simon's anger and his responses. Sometimes when he gets like this, I'm tempted to pull him aside. Deep breaths, no snow. Let it go. Some of it before you start another fire. Whatever it is you're worried about, this won't help. But I never do. Why don't you try it, Baz? You might be surprised. Like, oh my gosh. No. Yeah, it's because he he's already, you know, he has the expectation that he's going to have to get into this fight to the death with Simon, yeah. right? And he expects to lose. He expects that Simon hates him and he doesn't want to open himself up to that kind of hurt. But I love that he has that instinct, you know, to like, he wants to talk Simon down and we'll see him do this later mm. on, right? Yeah. And it's just so beautiful. Like, Baz is so mean, but he's such a soft boy. <laughs> like, he's, he's so kind, but soft. not nice. Yeah. Which I'm a sucker for. I have so much time for it. I love how much they circle each other. And there are a few moments where I was just like, this is perfectly normal roommate behavior. <laughs> so when Simon walks out of the bathroom and he's got blood on his chin and Baz is immediately like, what are you doing? Like, where's your cross necklace? Like, he's angry because Simon has put himself at risk. But Simon doesn't know mm. that. Simon's just like, oh, better get my necklace. And then he like does this thing where he puts it on by standing in front of him and like puts it on. Tell me that that is not yeah. a I dare you to kiss me moment. I thought it was a great moment of like both control and expectation. Having the cross actually makes Simon feel in control of the situation. Like mm-hmm. he's spoken about it before, right? And it also ha- helps Baz control his natural impulse, even though he wouldn't actually hurt Simon because yeah. he is in control of that anyway. But the cross is another measure of control. But then Baz also just expects Simon to be wearing it. Yeah. And Simon expects Baz not to acknowledge it because acknowledging it it means something which is why this is such a moment where he's like I hold it out I want him to acknowledge what it means he needs other people to use the words for him yeah they have such expectations of each other to behave in a certain way like they make these observations about each other's appearances and where they should be at this stage of the year like you know Baz says he's thin he's drawn normally he'd be back by clobbering weight by now and then Simon says he looks awful today even paler than usual he's thinner than usual too and they both have the same expectation of being at Watford as well like for this last year it's yeah. for both their homes and oh it just hurts me because for Simon it's the last time he'll ever get to belong and yeah. for Baz it's the last year he gets to be where he last saw his mother and I can't the feelings are too much they've got each other really down right and they have this whole yeah. dance that they do when they live together like Simon showers at night Baz showers in the morning like there are all these expectations at play and all these well-worn habits of avoiding someone I think that the best comparison I got was when they were talking about sharing a room with the person that you dot 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 and with Simon he said sharing a room with the person you hate the most is like sharing a room with a siren you can't ignore that person you never get used to them it never stops being painful and then Baz on page 177 says sharing a room with the person you want most is like sharing a room with an open fire he's constantly drawing you in and you're constantly stepping too close and you know it's not good that there is no good that there's absolutely nothing that can ever come of it but you do it anyway and then well then you burn I love that I love that and also because Baz is a fire mage as well I just Mm -hmm. love that analogy so much like I just they just they make me stupid the two of them (laughs) I know that I told you on text about this but I loved the section so much and I loved hearing so much of Baz finally that I listened to it twice I read it and then I listened to it again this morning while I was icing my niece's cake so I was like I just really want to hear it again snarky mean Baz I love when Simon's trying to talk to him about his mum and he's like you know I and Baz will finish his sentence being like I'm an embarrassment to magic he's just like constantly like getting the knife in there and he's like yeah Yeah. like that made me mad I was like this is not fair stop 
stop. Stop and listen. Stop picking at him. It hurts him too much, right? Yeah. It just hurts him too much. He can't he can't be kind to Simon because it'll just kill him, basically. Yeah, and if you expect the people that you love to like if you if he were to lower his guard even for a moment, he would be so vulnerable. And I just don't think he really thinks that there's any reason for it. Like he's really happy to be secretly in love with him. Like he's not happy, but you know, he's better with that because then he doesn't have He's already lost it. He's never had it, you know? Baz. Yeah, exactly. And he also just expects that they're going to have this big, massive fight. Like, he's going to have to fight Simon, and then Simon's going to kill him. So he's like, well, what's the point? What's the point of trying, basically? <laughs> I love, though, that he says, you know, I'm basically immortal, but then Simon is something else. Even though Simon drives him mad, and he describes him as being half numb to himself, <laughs> he actually is just, like, in awe of him. Like, he yeah. thinks he's such a great fighter, and he, like, makes all these little observations. Greatest just, mage mm. that ever lived. It's something really beautiful about what he says. It's on page 176 when he's talking about having been kidnapped and like how he got himself through it and when I felt myself slipping too far I held on to the one thing I'm always sure of blue eyes bronze curls the fact that Simon Snow is the most powerful magician alive that nothing can hurt him not even me that Simon Snow is alive and I'm hopelessly in love with him it's such a good reveal I remember the first time I read this I was just like what <laughs> Yeah, did you just that like... subversion? Yeah, the subversion of the trope is so good, so good. I love this. I'm secretly in love with you, and you will never know because I am going to be relentlessly mean. So my my niche trope, the thing that I'm always like into, is the enemies to lovers, mm. and I think that this is such a good way of doing it because they do know each other so well. Like when I say I love enemies to lovers, I love Simon and Baz because they know each other so well, and they're annoyed about all the things. But also because they know each other so well that they can just skip over being annoyed by the things they're already annoyed about and get on to loving each other properly when they finally figure it out. Yeah, totally. It's gorgeous. I love it. I, I just, I love how Simon just lies to himself all the time. Like he is just <laughs> lying to himself when he says like, oh, Agatha's watching him too, but she doesn't have to worry about him killing her. You're not worried about Baz killing you. No. Like that is, this is the first time you've mentioned it, but that is not why you're obsessed with them. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, there's a point where more perfectly normal roommate behavior, he remembers that he's wearing the same pants he wore yesterday when he and Agatha broke up and he touches Baz's handkerchief like, yeah, that's totally normal. Totally a normal thing to do. Oh, gosh. And he gets upset when Penny says, you know, a dead vampire. Like, okay, not dead, but missing. Like, he's like, what? He, he can't be dead. That's not allowed. I love how obsessed he is with one, thinking Baz is dead because he's not there, but also later when he's worried about when people call him dead because he's a vampire. He really rails against that. Like, mm. he, it's something that really bugs him. Okay, so he where do you it. fall on that? I have to know. Do you think that he's dead or do you think that he's, like, half dead? I don't or... think he's dead because if he was dead, he wouldn't need food. So it doesn't make sense. Right. But zombies are dead. Yeah. Because that's how I, I think vampires are alive, but just differently alive. Like a fungus is differently alive, I guess. Yeah. But I think zombies are dead. Like a virus. Zombies, I feel like, have to be dead. Well, I suppose you can cure them. Oh, there's some zombie films. Like, I don't know if you've seen Warm Bodies, which is great. It's like a zombie, Robio and Juliet. Very highly recommend. Nicholas Holt. Amazing. Great hmm. soundtrack. I just started watching The Great, and he's so terrible in that that I'm starting to hate him now. He's terrible. He is so terrible in that. Like, <laughs> I don't know where I sit on that show. I think I watched it thinking it would be more funny than it is. And I'm just really frustrated by everybody in that show. Yeah. I mean, it's funny and kind of like it tries to shock you way, I guess. Yeah. 
yeah so i don't know like there are zombie films where you get to cure the virus and cure the people but it does mm. feel like it makes sense for them to be dead but i've never thought of vampires as dead i just think of them as immortal i think those two things are different yeah right like fairies right they're, it's different yeah like they're fae or something but it's like a different category or elves yeah let's talk about agatha because i think simon is still coming to terms with his expectations of agatha mm-hmm. not being met right like he talks about when penny's talking about agatha and baz and simon's like my girlfriend who's good falling in love with my enemy who's completely evil yeah he's like i don't know whether agatha makes me sad or angry or even what i'm supposed to be feeling about her he doesn't have any feelings about the fact that they broke up other than frustrated it's it's about the fact that he lost a dream not about the fact that he's no longer connecting with her yeah it's the expectation that he's mourning like he had an expectation of how things were gonna go and now they're not going that way and he's still trying to figure out how that works and it's so sad but it's not he hasn't lost her they weren't together no but then we also see that in agatha and that she has this kind of expectation of something from baz right Mm -hmm. because you know as benny says it's romantic to be in love with a dead vampire (laughs) but she's been reading from a completely different script so baz says i give her a long cool look let her make of that what she wants she will anyway so he knows that she will just take whatever and run with it he doesn't really need to do anything oh that pinged something like that silly trope of like oh i'll never wash this cheek again if someone kisses your cheek or something but like yeah like a guy gives you a like oh here take this and it's like a pencil and they're like treasuring it but it's just a pencil like that kind of thing like she's just collecting treasures but they're actually really meaningless because penny is right she says agatha's not in love with baz it's just romantic to be in love with a dead vampire like agatha doesn't know what she wants like penny is very insightful she also says about simon and agatha's relationship like your relationship has had better years years yeah i love that line and i love that Mm. penny was like oh good i can tell you now (laughs) and she's like you were just going through the motion yeah bless i love penny and she's not wrong like she's correct they were just going through the motions and agatha is not really in love with Bears. It's just, I think it's hard because the expectation was there and without that hope, Simon feels more out of control. Like if mm. he and Agatha were still solid, I feel like Baz's reappearance would not have shaken him as much. Yeah, because as he said last in the last section we read, you know, you have to believe you have an endgame. That's how you keep going. So yeah. by losing the expectations of the endgame, which was Agatha, he loses control of his present, right? He loses control of his own narrative. I think he's already really at that end of his tether when that happens and then the next morning Baz turns up and is completely arrogant and not willing to even give a quarter and it's it's just a lot won't come back to his room and he's waiting for him and he's waiting for him in the dining hall Baz is just nowhere where Simon expects him to be yeah that's a lot and then he can't bear the thought of like being away from Baz like Penny wants him to go to dinner with her mum she's like no I've got to keep an eye on Baz I have to like (laughs) have to know where he is at all times perfectly normal roommate behavior yeah he says something like he wants to knock him over and check him Mm. I want to run him down and knock him over and figure it all out what's wrong with him where he's been this definitely sounds like something that you're you're doing to your sworn enemy yeah on that same page on page 163 he says things like i just want and he doesn't finish the thought i'm like what do you want you what you want is to kiss him that's what you want you just don't know it yet like come on simon i think it's hard to recognize because i don't know that he's ever felt love in that way i think he does Mm. care about this is my thing i think he cares about agatha so much but he loves the idea of what being with Agatha is like. Like that picture of them at formal. That's what he loves. He loves the idea that he could belong. But I don't know that he's actually felt that like intense feeling before and identified it as love. I would suggest that it is quite similar to my own experience growing up. It's just that you don't know that you have other options. Like that mm-hmm. is the reality that is presented to you. That is what you're told that you're supposed to want. This is what your life will look like. It'll be the prom photo. It'll be this. It'll be... yeah. 
And there's so there's so little resistance because it, it feels okay. It doesn't feel like it's terrible. Yeah, and you just don't know that you have options. Like you don't know that there's another path, that there are other things. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, you're tangentially aware of the fact that, you know, people are gay and that, but it's not presented to you as like a thing. Isn't the narrative always like, oh, I always knew from the time I was small. Like, I just want to say for a lot of people out there, you are not, you don't have to know right away. You don't have to be a 10-year-old who's aware of your own sexuality yeah. or preferences. You don't have to be the four-year-old who always knew that they were a boy instead of a girl or whatever like you can come to these things late and you are no less valid you also don't ever have to claim any particular identity which is something that in this whole series Simon never says I'm gay or I'm bi or anything we don't get a label because he doesn't know what he is he doesn't want to figure it out it's so far down the list of things that are important to figuring out I think it's really valuable that we actually mention that like you don't have to have an identity that is firm and fixed you have your whole life to be who you are and that's gonna look different and just because you don't know at like a young age doesn't make it any less valid. 100%. We are products of our environment. We are products of you only know what you know. And if you don't know, you don't know. Like that's mm. not a failing on you. It's just wild to me that we just expect people to know. You don't have to know. It's okay not to know. No. We're all just figuring it out. It's especially hard if you can't articulate. Simon just can't articulate anything. I just honestly think it's the expectation, right? Mm, like it's the mm-hmm. expectation that's presented. This is what the chosen one's path looks like. So he's like, yeah, sure. Because yeah. as you said, he doesn't he hasn't had experience that would suggest anything else. He hasn't experienced love or anything in that realm, right? He hasn't seen yeah. it. You know, he didn't have first person experiences of like any good role models about yeah. what a, a healthy relationship looks like or anything like that. And he has Penny, but so he's got that fraternal love and he knows that's not how he feels about Baz but the same language that he used around Penny like I just want to pat her down from head to toe to make sure she's okay he does that with Baz when he says I just want to knock him over and check that he's you know like what's wrong and where he's been Mm. it's that physical like so to me Simon has proprioception issues like the way he sleeps all knotted up that to me says this is somebody who has sensory issues and is like constantly Mm. worried and he wears the same clothes every day like that's a thing that people do like I joke about my son in his Fury uniform but like honestly he wears it because it's comfortable and I know that so I make sure he's got copies of all of the things he loves to wear because it's comfortable for him. Simon Snow is the same. He needs to wear the same thing every day. He likes wearing the same thing every day, even on weekends. And he sleeps all crushed up. This is somebody for whom he needs that sensory input and crushing into people is part of how he gets that like deep pressure stimulation. I wonder if if for Simon he was just touched child as a kid as well, right? Like I just mm. I can just imagine him as like a small child. Like he has already has issues expressing himself. He yeah. came late to language because he just didn't have that kind of support in his life. So arguably no one would have hugged him or like cuddled him or done any of those things. Like he is just starving in every way. Like the you know, the humdrum is hungry. Simon is hungry. It's just a void waiting to be filled. And as we see later, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. I feel like there's something about just as a thought like there there are certain things that you can't do when you're like in daycare like you can't like you can't cuddle the kids too much if you're a teacher right Mm. and I find that like sometimes that I see that there's sense to that but also if you're not allowed to like love the kids and care if you have these restrictions which like yes some of them are very sensible but I often wonder like what's it like for kids who live in those care homes who is looking after them in that way that they need to be looked after because kids do need touch like that's their first language is touch Mm. and the way that he's described is like blurring and shimmering like he's Mm. he stops having edges I find it so fascinating because I don't really like 
being touched. No touching. I don't. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to feel like my skin was really sensitive. Like I felt like I was always burning or itching. My skin was always like sore. Like it was like a bruise. Like my whole skin was bruised. I don't know what it was. I find it hard to explain. I seem to have sort of grown out of that, but it was really difficult. Like sometimes it would just feel like some days my skin would just hurt. And I didn't like people I didn't really know very well touching me. I From a young age, like it was a big thing in my family that everyone would say, oh, you know, Jen doesn't want to give you a kiss. She doesn't want to give you a hug. And my mum would be like, that's fine. She doesn't have to. She's in charge of her own body. I love your mum. She's the best. Yeah, I just didn't like doing it. And then like people got really outraged. Like lots of, you know, aunts would be like, what do you mean? But I just don't like it. And how good is the fact that there's a pandemic? You can't get close to people that you don't know, want get to get close genuinely, to Genuinely. And I'm like, please, please, let's not bring handshakes back because I hate handshakes as well. <laughs> I'm like, I just don't want to touch rando people. Like I like... I love cuddles from people that I love. Like yeah. my friends, I will get up close to, I cuddle up to my mom, you know, like that's fine. But it's just these random touching things I don't like. Anyway, that's a real tangent. I love that. And I love knowing that about you. I am the legs over a person. Like if I can put my legs over someone, I am so happy. And I don't mind if people put their legs over me. But like sometimes I'm just like, what? No, everybody go away. Get away. Like I, just need, <laughs> I need the bubble. Yeah. Touching is strange. I agree. I feel like Simon should have been touched he needed Cuddled, better. hugged, loved, loved. That's what he needed. He just needed to be loved. He needed to be loved. I feel like Baz also kind of had a rough ride of it, right? Like he loses his mum and then his dad is a wreck after it. And there's all these political things as well. But Yeah, and his auntie is not fit to parent. She's not yeah, a responsible yeah, yeah. adult. Oh my gosh. I just, the thing I think that really upset me about Simon is that it's so easily avoidable like yeah. he did not have to be his story there is a perfectly relevant alternative mm -hmm. like yeah so the whole idea of making the chosen one and then shepherding him into adulthood only works if you actually shepherd him into adulthood you can't just dump him on normals and expect him to be fine davy it's very strange but that's actually a good segue into how I think the mage attempts to control people, right? So for him, yeah. the raids on the old families, that's a very much a control thing. I think the fact that he won't let the kids have mobile phones is also a control thing. Absolutely. It's starting to sound culty, right? I actually think there's something about him having these children at school that is essentially holding them hostage in order to keep families in line. Yeah. I wonder if that's why he insists on being headmaster, because he's obviously got no interest in it. Like, yeah, he's he not, never care. there. But by having the kids under his control, he can keep the parents in line. Like, it's quite sinister. Yeah, no wonder the other parents are pulling their kids out. And I think that Agatha was onto something when she said, last section was it? Maybe they just don't want to be villains, treated like villains. The children yeah. of the old families. I mean, look, they have had it pretty good for a long time. And I can see how a lot of those changes would be confronting. And some of them are just plain nuts. Like, yeah, they do need to tax people, but they should also still be charging some kind of fees. Like, that should be a fee structure. Means tested, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, means testing would make sense. And like scholarships, right? But Absolutely. When Baz says that um, there are rules about when we can meet and where, like that is also incredibly invasive. Mm. Banning books, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah, um, that's part of my end of marginalia is all about that. Also, another thing I think the mage is doing to control people is he has started this whole narrative about wasting magic. I don't think this was a thing before he came along. Yeah. Because we see that Baz is so resentful when he gets called out in class about, you know, don't waste magic. And he just starts shooting off spells quicker <laughs> and quicker. And Penny does the same thing. She actually calls it out, right? There's the, there's the part where yeah. she says, I'm tired of hearing this. What are we saving it for? 
And then Simon says, you know, when, so it's there when we need it or whatever it is, which sounds like a, a mage thing, right? Like, yeah. we must hoard the magic so that we can have it for this big showdown. Which is just another way. Like, if you tell people that it's wasteful to use magic, you keep them in line because they're not going to rise up against you because they believe they don't have the magic. Because Penny says in America, there's a theory that the more you use, the more powerful you become. Which, which would make sense. Yeah, it's like weightlifting or endurance training or anything. But also if we think about Simon being a vessel and he's holding all the magic potential in him, right? Like he is strong because of the potential of it. So if yeah. you use it more, then strength is related to that. Yeah, I find that fascinating about the, the waste of magic. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too, because I agree. I don't think it can be wasted. Although I'm wondering if maybe they think that it's linked to the growing holes in the magical atmosphere, maybe? I mean, they do run out of it. We see that in the second book, right? Like, they kind of deplete their magic, but... I, I always thought that was, like, when you get tired, like, you're at the end of a day, busy day, you're just tired, you can't think properly, or, like, you're running and you can't run anymore because it's been, like, 10Ks already or whatever, you know? Like, I feel like it's, like, some people are better natural runners, some people have more tolerance, some people just can't run at all, like... Which would make sense with the whole, like, the more you use it, the stronger you get because your endurance goes up, so therefore you yeah. don't run out of magic, but... Yeah. Um, another way I saw control was just the idea of magic as a way to control normals. Like, so we hear about Malcolm Grimm spelling Vera innocent when it all gets too much to her, for her. But I love that she's got this thing like, oh, they're in they're the mafia. mafia. And that's how she handles it. <laughs> in this creepy vampire house. Sure. <laughs> like, I just feel like you don't even need to think that. I have seen so many episodes of like, grand designs and the people who live in these old <laughs> weird houses are just old weirdos <laughs> no yeah i mean rich people, people are weird <laughs> yes and the older and more established their families are the more that they are just bonkers because their Look own at culture the royal family has like... distilled yes has distilled down to this completely isolated like they're like <laughs> island communities right they're like they're like the galapagos of people <laughs> They've just evolved into something completely weird, like a giant lizard or a dwarf elephant, like not normal for the rest of the world, but completely fine in the island that they live in. Which is why they're so resentful of like new money, because they're like, they don't know our ways. And they're not going to teach anybody their ways because they're not one of ours. You need to evolve into it. You can't be taught it. Get out of our niche ecosystem, new money. <laughs> very delicate ecosystem <laughs> the nouveau riche ecosystem i have been watching so much planet earth if you can't tell well i was just listening to hamilton when i was going for my run and there's that bit where thomas jefferson accuses hamilton of being you know new money dresses like royalty <laughs> just like oh he kind of is but also like isn't everybody new money in the new world you would think so so where did your money come from thomas let's not get carried away also, I'm pretty sure that Alexander Hamilton's dad was like a Scottish lord or something. <laughs> I thought there was expectations from Penny as well. Like she has kind of expectations of Simon mm -hmm. and how Simon is going to behave. But she knows him so well. Yeah. And she kind of doesn't take any joy in the things that he has to do, right? Like there's that moment where Simon's like, oh, you know, you say that. But then when we're in danger, you're happy for me to kill things. And she says, I never want you to kill Simon. And he says, yeah. I never feel like I have a choice. He has no control over what he has to do to survive. No. But I also love that she says to him, don't pick a fight with bears. And he's like, I won't. And she's like, you do every year as soon as you see him. Fair enough. They've got that whole summer of tension to get out of the way. Once they've had their little punch up, it's fine. Um, I think that there was a really interesting element of control that came out in 
the last bit of the section we read where Penny was explaining that the the visitings, the visitors, mm. the souls, she says, um, Simon calls them ghosts, but she thinks they're souls. They come looking for people where they think they'll be. So just like a normal person would like, mm. oh, well, um, I know that Jen usually walks to work at this time. So I'll go wait for her there and say hello to her. Like we know what people do. So it's like these spirits have this idea of where people are meant to be and they kind of check it out and then they appear. So you can kind of control whether or not they actually get to pass their message on if you remove that person from the equation Mm. which I thought was a very interesting concept Uh, like Penny even says like if you're worried that a soul might come back and tell your secret you can try to hide the living person who might get visited which also plays on expectations right because it's the expectation that the soul has of someone's behavior so if you circumvent that expectation you can control the situation Simon even thinks of you know Baz's mom standing by the window waiting for Baz to turn up but he's never there and she finally just says fine I'm gonna do this I'm gonna take control of it and say what I need to say even if it's not to the right person Mm. which is very typical of the pitches i think yeah be in charge be in charge very short fuses no patience for nonsense i relate to that (laughs) um did you have any tangential other tangential marginalia um i did i actually just want to do one more thing on expectation and that was malcolm Grimm. i just want to say that so many people in this society this kind of the world of majors is a bit broken like the major's not wrong about that right like people are playing these roles and malcolm Grimm has to go through the motions of the old family because it's expected of him but he doesn't want to his heart's not in it he just wants to be a little farmer a magical farmer (laughs) i super love him for this i i just imagined him with like 10 sheepdogs or whatever and like all of his children and like and Baz is like, ew. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, my mom must have been very in love with him to marry this guy. So funny. It's hilarious. I mean, like, mother like son, I guess. The taste isn't great, let's be honest. <laughs> even even Baz thinks he's just ridiculous with who he has fallen in love with, but... It does crack me up because I feel like his dad is just kind of very reserved, but very nice. I think he's probably a kind person. Very traditional, right? Like I just kind of, I don't know why I imagine him as like a stoic Scottish farmer, you know, just getting on with it. (gasps) Well, Malcolm. Yeah, absolutely. It's Mm. a very Scottish name. That's it. That's it. I've just decided he's Scottish. His dad is Scottish. I love that. Into it. Um, The tangential thing that I wanted to call out was just the bit on page 150 where Mm. Simon says, I jab at my eggs a few times, then drop my fork. So Simon is so stressed about bears that he's actually not eating. Simon Snow, not eating, not eating. He's just like, I don't even want to anymore. I don't even care. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh. I love that. And I also love the bit right after it where he's like, he promised to make my life miserable and he's not making good on it. How (laughs) very dare he? We have expectations and you are not meeting them. Perfectly normal roommate behavior to be mad that the person who's been your sworn enemy isn't there antagonizing you. I also love that Baz is just such a little, like, I just love him so much. But when he's, like, talking to the Minotaur about, you know, he won't need to catch up on Greek because he's just already ahead of everyone. And he's like, you know, he mentions that creatures weren't allowed on staff then, which is problematic as heck. Yeah. But then he's like, I dare them to hold that against me. I dare them all. I just love that. Like, he's like, Mm. yeah, this is my heritage. This is, like, my history. But, you know. The fact that he doesn't shy away from it, but also is still fairly polite is kind of the only way forward i think about this a lot and i will touch on this when i do my in-depth but like having a problematic history doesn't mean that you're bound to it yeah you can change it absolutely like you have a choice going forward what you do Mm. but um also yeah he's a bit speciesist in the way he talks 
Oh, yeah. I think the whole community is. I think the whole, like, this is really great. Like, there's so much nuance, right? Like, we hear Penny complaining incessantly about Trixie the pixie, and Simon calls her out on that every time she mm-hmm. says something. It's like, oh, they have an unfair advantage. And he's like, okay, but only in this, because, you know, just because they're gay and they can hang out in yeah. their dorm together, that's the only advantage that they get, Penny, and she's decent enough not to argue. Yeah. I haven't seen Baz being checked on this yet, but I'm definitely looking for it, because I think it's really interesting that we have this actual realistic world with these people who have these inbuilt prejudices and yeah and like things that you would have inherited right like these are the exposures to his family like things that fiona obviously we've seen that she says some really problematic things so this is the stuff that he internalizes we'll see penny in future books as well like she has some very problematic internalized beliefs as well and like her parents do and yeah how do you unpack that how do you unlearn that behavior get a ship Hmm. love him I know I can't wait for a book two and we get Shep but that's so many books away (laughs) it's coming people it's coming we're gonna do the whole series because we are amazing yeah and also I just need to talk about it all the time or I will explode I love the line on page 175 where you know Baz is thinking about Fiona and he says the Mm. way she misses my mother keeps her alive for me I think that's really important I think often when someone dies there's this reluctance to talk about them because you're afraid of like you know, reopening the wound. It's like people really stop talking about someone once they've yeah. passed. And I think the fact that Fiona, like, yeah, she's vengeful and problematic. You know, she keeps Natasha alive. She keeps that fire burning. And there's something really lovely about that. I think it's her own trauma. It's a comfort for Baz to know that Fiona hasn't moved on. Mm. And that's not particularly healthy. But he is a growing kid. And he needs to know that someone else loves and misses his mother as much as he does. And I think that that's really good. Um, mm. There's a great book, um called How to Catch a Frog by Heather Ross and it's actually a memoir and it does talk a little bit about her later life as an illustrator but it's a lot about her childhood in Vermont and one of the things that she talks about in the book which really struck me was that at one point one of her relatives said this isn't fair and you shouldn't have to deal with this and this shouldn't be the way your life is going and she just remembered that relief of having another adult acknowledge this experience Mm. and injustice and the unfairness of the situation it just made it so much better for her knowing that someone else saw it even if nobody could really Mm. do anything someone else saw it and that was like such a good example of don't just do something stand there yeah fiona is standing there for baz in a way that he really needs yeah um the other thing that I really loved is page 180 when Baz says, I hate him. I hated him so much by then. I hated the sight of him. I hated what the sight of him did to me. I think that is such an important distinction. He doesn't hate Simon. He just hates how he feels about Simon because he can't yeah. do anything about it, right? Like there's no, no outlet for his feelings. He tried one summer. And <laughs> if he was like, what, 15? That's a lot of teen angst. Look, being a teenager is so difficult. It is just hard. Okay, so the thing about being a teenager is like, they always say birth to three is like the most important developmental time. There's actually a couple of really important developmental times in your life. And the teenage years are the other important time. So you have all of these hormones. Everything's growing. You've got hair in weird places. You're starting to really notice people that you're attracted to if that's how you end up being. And then also you have all of these feelings and you haven't figured out how to like deal with them. If you're a teen, you are doing it tough, my friend. Yeah. It is the worst of times. It it feels like it is, and it is. Just so you know, it is. And having adults around you who very patiently tell you that it will get better does not actually help, I think, most of the time. You just have to figure it out for yourself. But it really does get better. No one's ever felt the way that you have. I get it. I get it. But we've all felt like that. But I get it. We've all felt like no one's ever felt the way that we have. Yeah. Um, Did you have tangential marginalia? I had a few. I love the way that Simon 
speaks about Penny. He says, she's stupidly brave. It's the only stupid thing about her. And I swear it gets worse when we go too long between emergencies. This girl's a little bit addicted to action. She likes yeah. being an action man. She likes having a task. She likes achieving a goal. Likes the adrenaline. She does. I think she's just used to it, like um, like an addict or something. Um, And I also love that the end of the section is I go out to the window to see if I can spot Baz on the pitch. Like, even at the very end, he's like, I'm just going to go look after, look look at him, see where he's like. He's such a little, he's such a weirdo. I love that Penny told him where Baz was and he's like, pitch on the pitch. Like, that's so lame and I love it. <laughs> it's so good. Snow and pitch, the like light and the dark. I love it. So good. Do you want to talk about your in-depth marginalia? Yes. Okay. So um, this part made me laugh and then I couldn't stop thinking about it. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. Okay. So on page 172, Baz is talking about, like he and Fiona are talking about the mage raiding the ancestral homes of the old families and how his family has banned books and some of their cookbooks even have been banned. And he says, even some <laughs> of our cookbooks are banned, though it's been centuries at least since the pitches ate fairies. You can't even find fairies anymore and not because we ate them all. <laughs> And it made me laugh because it's so silly <laughs> because he's so funny, even when he's like being snotty and defensive. But the way that it connects with the theme is that they, the mage is definitely using these raids as a way of exerting control, as you pointed out, over his supposed enemies, the old families, by taking their things and reminding them like, who's in charge? But it also comes down on the side of expectation. Fiona points out like, oh, he says if we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to hide. But he's banning books, which is problematic, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a debate going on about banned books right now. Specifically, there's a school board in Tennessee that has banned Mouse, written by Art Spiegelman, and he's the son of a Holocaust survivor. And Mouse mm -hmm. is one of those really difficult books. Like, I think I've read parts of it or I've seen parts of it, but I haven't actually read the whole book. Um, it's on back order everywhere because it's banned. So now everybody wants to buy it so that they've got a copy, right? But I think it's important when we look at books that are problematic, even books that we can agree aren't just telling a really important historical story, but are like, this is a terrible text about a lot of terrible people who did terrible things. We still need to have them and we still need to teach about them in context. When we erase that information, we don't have that history and like we're doomed to repeat it if we don't know it, right? Mm. But it's a little funny the way that Baz says it. Like, he knows that there's value in having those banned books. Like, he knows he's not going to catch and eat fairies and cook them. But that's a family tradition thing. That was definitely a thing. That was a thing that his family did. That was a thing mm. that people did back in the day. Like, somebody wrote and published a cookbook on how to catch and eat fairies. And if you hide that or ban it, then that information is lost. So I think there's something to be said about, like, information being available. But I don't know. I just want to remind myself that, like, we can't protect everybody from everything. So we need to put things in context, but also not erase history. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that's a great thing to remember. There was a great, I think it was a Twitter thread where someone was saying, you know, authors aren't here to moralize life for you. Like, people can yeah. write about difficult things. Like, there's a lot of talk about, you know, should Lolita be banned or books like that because they are problematic but it's through the problematic nature that you learn something right like it's because that mm. it challenges your perception of what's right and wrong like that is what makes them valuable yeah absolutely you can't just ban things you don't agree with and the point of studying books like that is we're meant to use it as a critical examination of the self like that is the whole point of literature like that we look at it and we can compare it to how we live and to how we want to be like it's always a litmus test for our own things it's not mm. a guide it's not a how-to like i don't 
write about characters who've gone through trauma to make people feel like they should go and traumatize other people. It's for myself to get that out or for other people who've experienced it to be like, okay, wow, I feel seen. Someone else has lived through this and survived and this character is doing this and doing well now. I'm not condoning it, but like these things happen. Which is where the critical thinking part is so important, right? Like that's why Mm -hmm. it's reductive to just be like, I didn't like this book, therefore this book is bad. Like I can say I didn't like this book, but I see that it still has value because of this reason or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So mine is actually really quite a bit weird, but it's on page 167. Simon is recounting how he ended up with Baz as a roommate, right? And he's talking about the crucible and the history of like how every first year gets assigned a roommate because of the crucible and the ritual that goes around with it. So it says 167, the mage sets the crucible. It's an actual crucible, maybe the oldest thing at Watford in the middle of the fire and says the incantation. Then everyone waits for the iron and set to melt. I think the reason I chose is it because I think rituals are an, a sense of control like they give you a sense Mm. of control about life it reduces the feeling of uncertainty that you have about things because you've done this thing and therefore you now have control over it but it also ascribes meaning right like so there's an expectation that because you've done something there will be certain consequences to it there's a certain role that's being fulfilled that has always been fulfilled and will be fulfilled for years and years to come right because that is the ritual of it it just reminded me I don't know if you saw this week there was a story about a priest in Arizona who said the wrong word during baptisms and now there's this thing about like all these baptisms are invalid because he said we baptize you instead of I baptize you. And did, didn't like a whole bunch of other priests then come out and say that they had also been doing it the wrong? The way it was reported is like these baptisms are invalidated because of it. But how can it be? Like it's not the words that make it important. It's the ritual. Firstly, firstly, you've translated this from Latin. So the idea that you have even close to the original meaning of this ritual is ridiculous in and of itself. There's just no way. There's just mm. no way. Like something has gotten lost in translation throughout the years. And it's it's not what's valuable it's not the fact that the man is standing up there and saying the thing it's the whole act of it right like you've gone yeah. there you've had the intention like this is what you've taken your child to be baptized you have an intention for what that means and what happens yeah why then would that be invalidated because one word is wrong like it doesn't undercut the intention of the ritual yeah. i just think that's interesting i love this because it's the meaning you ascribe to the action right like it's what you bring Absolutely. to it so you've gone there with the idea that i'm doing this thing this will mean something for my child so then it means something whether or not the guy says we instead of i is re- besides the point yeah i guess as a protestant you know we were always taught that like once you once you invite christ into your heart you're saved like that's the thing you, you do it once and it's we're done not Catholics. right yeah but I was I was Baptist, so like there was a, an opportunity to get baptized and like actually join the church formally as a Baptist, and I I didn't ever do it. It just wasn't a thing that I felt called to do. I guess I don't. I just felt like I wasn't a good enough human to be worthy enough of that. To be completely honest, but I remember a friend, one of my friends at Sunday school, Leslie did that, and she had classes to do, and like it was like a thing that she chose to do, and she was ready to do it, and I just felt like in awe of her for being so confident that she knew that that was what she wanted. Yeah, I think that it's. It's not really up to the priest saying a specific word. It's about you and your relationship with the ritual itself. Yeah. And I just think for me going forward, what I wanted to take from that is like, I've really felt I've let my rituals drop recently. And I think, you know, I've said to you that I feel really out of sorts and like my mental health is not great. And I think a part of that is because I've let go of some of these rituals. You know, when you feel good, you're like, everything's fine. And you stop... You stop doing the things that actually contribute to your sense of well-being because you feel good. It's like, I feel great, so I'll stop taking my meds. Like, that's not how that works. (laughs) You know, I'm not getting wet, so I will close my umbrella even though it's still raining. Like, that whole analogy. So this was just a good reminder for me to be like, what matters with the ritual is the intention you bring to it and you need to revisit 
some of your rituals. And also shed what's not working. That's okay, too. Get new things. I have to give myself permission to be like, I'm going to let go of a thing that's not working. Because sometimes I feel like I do have to keep doing all of the things. Hmm. Important. Thanks, Jen. That was really beautiful. I think I'm going to have a think about that, too. What rituals I want to keep up. Who would you like to spotlight this week? Well, I'm going to spotlight Baz, my beloved, because he was in a coffin for six weeks. And it is ridiculous that he is, you know, what, 18 years old, shoved into a coffin, like not fed for six weeks, doesn't get out, like not showered, doesn't go to the bathroom, nothing. Like he's just shoved in there. Like that is horrific. It's torture. And he is just like, yeah, I'll go back to school. That's fine. And just, yeah, for staying in control, for being so cool, calm and collected and not letting other people see, you know, what's kind of churning along under the surface. Like, yeah, it's great to be open with people, but also I think it's amazing how the way that he protects himself. I think that has a place in the world and I think he is amazing and I love him. I love him so much. (laughs) I love him too. And I'm very proud of him because it was very hard. I'm, I'm proud of him that he finally let Fiona convince him to go home because he actually needed to sleep for two weeks and not not try and go back to school that day imagine if he turned up in that state that would have been horrific for him as well like oh gosh no Uh, yeah he was not thinking clearly and I think Fiona was cognizant of that so that Mm. that's a point in her favor even though she's kind of a hot mess (laughs) yeah she's definitely a hot mess she's totally hot mess who would you like to spotlight this week I would like to spotlight Simon because he is not coping and he is full of this relief he can't name and this feeling he can't articulate and he just he just needs like an hour with a good OT Mm. (laughs) so so he can get some like really good proprioceptive deep tissue pressure and regulate a bit better I want to buy him the compression singlet so that he can like feel okay when he's at school I want to like work on some keyword side like I just want to like special needs mom the heck out of this Mm. kid because I feel like he really needs someone to help him learn how to exist in this world and nobody's giving him that support and I really did a lot of momming this week like my parenting I had to be on the ground thinking and working for my kids like it was a big week for that so I just felt like I folded Simon Snow right into that I just want to look after him like he does he deserves a mom I want I want to step in and help it's very hard when he's a fictional character and also probably doesn't want that but it just struck me that you said you wanted him to have like a weighted vest like oh he needs a weighted blanket and then there's that scene where Baz talks about the fact that Simon always sleeps with the windows open so he has lots of blankets on his bed and he's gotten used to the weight of them yeah so Simon has forced Baz to have weighted blankets but Simon is the one who needs it Okay, well, next week we'll be reading chapters 36 to 44 through the theme of ideology. Woohoo! I can't wait. Which will wait. be a lot. I'm excited. We have Baz, baby. He's back. He's back and I'm here for it. I'm here for every moment of it. It's going to be so good. Thank you so much, Jen. I really, really appreciate it. I really needed this time this week. It has been just absolutely great to sit and do this with you. Thank you. It's a pocket of positivity and just goodness that is sorely needed so thank my you my favorite ritual and i'm so glad mm. we're doing this me too all right well i will see you next week see you next week bye bye 
Thanks for joining us today. Marginally Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginally Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com.